Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Blanker. On Media Path, we launch into a topic that has caught our interest. And then we try to get you interested by mentioning books and movies and TV shows, any connected material that will help you be surprised and delighted with what you find. Wheezy, what have you come up with this time? So this week, Fritz, I am obsessed with a podcast called Rabbit Hole from the New York Times. It asks the question, what is the internet doing to us? The Times tech columnist Kevin Roos explores what happens to our thoughts and opinions when we spend so much time listening to the thoughts and opinions that we find online. So the series begins by examining the YouTube history of a guy named Caleb who was massively consuming self-help material and found himself being pulled down a white supremacy rabbit hole. So it seems like YouTube's algorithms are now designed to show you more of what you crave and keep you watching. So you can see where a guy who was dropped, who, you know, the guy was, he dropped out of college and he feels like he's underachieving. And you can see how a guy like this could be persuaded to believe that his lack of accomplishment must be the fault of others. And thus, you know, he adopts, you know, an uber conservative viewpoint where you can, you know, where they encourage folks to blame others for whatever is impacting them adversely rather than accountability, responsibility, the, the kind of stuff that I tend to believe in. But I, I'm just obsessed with it. I'm not done with it. I'm continuing to listen. I'll have more on it for you next week, but highly recommend. Very sly propagandizing. Unbelievable. Well, I've got two for you this week, Wheezy. First of all, if you're a Frank Sinatra fan and what red-blooded American isn't, I found the quintessential Frank documentary. It's produced by HBO. Now it finds itself everywhere, including Hulu. It's two parts, two hours each. And I know that sounds like a long time, but it's masterful documentary filmmaking. It's called Sinatra All or Nothing at All. And the beauty of this is it's no boring talking heads. It's fantastic video throughout this man's life and history. All the commentary is voiceover. For instance, his family and his friends and all the show business icons he was connected with and politicians. And Frank himself from previous recordings, all voiceover, never taking away from the video on the screen. I I mean, there is infinite amounts of internet material about Frank Sinatra. This is the best I have ever seen. Very compelling, even if you know all of the Frank stories. And then, if that wets your whistle, you should read Tom Dreesen's book called Still Standing. Tom's a wonderful stand-up comic. He opened for Frank for 20 years, along with other show business icons like Sammy Davis Jr. This book is chock-full of juicy anecdotes about the life on the road with Frank, and some of them downright hair-raising. One, I'm not going to give you the scary details, but it's how Frank saved Johnny Carson's life after Johnny had slighted a major mob figure. It's a fantastic book. So after you after you get the general Frank stuff, you can drill down on some real personal interactions with Tom because he was more than his opening act. He was he was a great friend. Yes, and now, if you're if you're continuing to obsess about Frank after watching these two, then I recommend there's two books by James Kaplan. One is called The Voice. It's his early years, and then the next one is called The Chairman. And th- those books are are really fascinating. I can't remember whether or not the documentary is is tied in or, or Kaplan is kind of a consultant on it. I think maybe he was because I, I I think I did watch this on HBO. And then you can complement that by just immersing yourself in the Sinatra station on Sirius XM 
because it's just delicious. Exactly. And, and and I think you turned me on to this book, and I can't remember the name of it, the one written by his valet, which gives a lot of his personal life. What was that one called? I don't think yeah. it was me that turned you on to that. Oh, okay. I think it well, I'm going to turn you on to it. I just have to remember the title. It's somewhere it in the bowels of uh, my living room. Tina or Nancy. I'm not sure who you were speaking with, but no, All right. I haven't read that one. Well, our guest today yeah. uh, tells great stories about great stories. He's a documentary filmmaker. Most notable, a three-part documentary on cult films. The first one is Time Warp, Midnight Madness. Uh, the next one is Time Warp Horror and high, uh, uh, Sci-Fi. The third one, Time Warp Comedy and Camp. All fantastic, even if you're just a, a general film fan. But his newest one, coincidentally, being released today on many streaming platforms, is called Skin. It's a history of nudity in the movies. Now... The thing is that all of his films, including the latest one, Skin, are really about much more than the title suggests. They're about our culture, our social mores, the moral pendulum in America that swings back and forth from year to year with anything having to do with public taste. I think this topic really resonates today, his skin topic does, because of the Me Too movement. We're going to talk about that. We're going to put links to his material on the screen so you can check it out. Please welcome Dan Wolf. Thanks for being here, Dan. Danny Thank Wolf. you, Fritz. Thank you, Louise. Very Thank glad for, to be with you guys. We're so excited to have you, and we're enjoying your shot board. Um, it's some really fantastic Zoom game that says <laughs> pro. That says serious pro. Your Time Warp series is divided in three parts, and, and the first one is called Midnight Madness. Is, is that, Danny, because these are films that would play at midnight and people would go dressed up in character and know every word? Yes, generally, you know, the, the, the documentary turned out to be almost six hours. So we thought best to break it into three uh, parts. And Midnight Madness really is the, the movies that launched, you know, the Rocky Horrors, the Harold and Mods, the Eraserheads, those movies that really Pink Flamingo, you know, the, the early John Waters movies that, that sort of launched the Midnight uh, Madness. And we threw some other films into part one that weren't always necessarily midnight shows like Spinal Tap, The Big Lebowski, which actually now has become a big midnight movie where people dress up and go to it and then yeah part two we did uh, horror and sci-fi and then part three went right into uh comedy and camp all right well let's take a look at the trailer i never knew what a cult film was till we became one come up to the lab and see what's on the slab the Big Lebowski. Why is it such a cult classic? It's just a damn good film. When it came out, I think it went over most people's heads. I saw Pink Flamingos when at the height of its popularity, and then I'd see it in court when I was charged with a pandemic at 10 a.m. <laughs> I love Spinal Tap. It takes a while for people to really understand what's going on. It doesn't matter what generation, everybody can relate. It has to be the audience finding the film rather than the film finding the audience. Putting razor blades in her hair so if she gets into a fight and somebody grabs her hair. Ah. Russ Meyer was not just your average exploitation filmmaker. Each teenage generation, they want to be different than the generations before them. Point Break is one of the greatest films made. Okay, but that guy fell on his head, so I, I don't know. Uh, greatest films ever made. Okay, so did Michael McKean define cult film best for you, Danny, when he said the audience finds it rather than it finds the audience? 
absolutely true. I mean, you can't set out to make a cult film. There's no way to know. Uh, it is the audience that decides often many, many, many years after the movie didn't do very well at the box office. And, and we have a lot of examples of that. But yeah, it's it's Fred Willard also says sort of the same thing. It, it's word of mouth. It's people find this gem and they like to take, you know, lead their friends on, hey, you got to check this movie out. And a movie like Harold and Maude, you know, wasn't the most successful movie when it came out, but it started playing college campuses. Word spread, more colleges showed it. It became a staple at midnight, you know, rep cinemas. And next thing you know, 30, 40, 50 years later, it's still finding new generations because, you know, it's a word of mouth kind of thing. But yes, often, you know, cult films do find their audiences many years later. I think Peter Farrelly also, who directed Kingpin, uh, said it best, you know, when it opened, no one saw it because the Olympic bombings were the same night it was released and nobody was going out. And he said it took until VHS and it started that people were, you know, passing it along and kind of spreading the word. And, you know, then it became the number one rental. Office Space is another movie that did not do well in the box office, but because Comedy Central almost had it on a loop as did VH1, it started finding new audiences years and years and years after and still these movies find new generations decades later. God bless the VHS tape, too, because that's how it finds an underground audience. Yeah, right? absolutely. So when uh, uh, I'll, I'll give an example uh, for this discussion about Rocky Horror Picture Show. The psychology behind that, which was fascinating, was that they have these sly social um, commentaries that they make. And the brilliance of that movie was it gave people permission to be who they were. It was the first time on screen when there were cross-dressing and suggestions of transgender activity. And uh, it, it gave people who lived on the fringes of society permission. It showed examples of how they felt and sort of built an audience that way as well. Absolutely true. And we, we discussed that, that and, and some of the cast members say it allowed you to be who you are. And you know, you go the new art cinema in Los Angeles still plays Rocky Horror Midnight shows, and it's it's a community. It's people that accept each other no matter what you look like, no matter what your beliefs are. You know, it's this this clubhouse mentality that everybody goes to theaters accepted, and you can be yourself, and no one puts you down for that. So you're right that, that Rocky Horror was sort of the first movie that that, that expressed that. It did it in a way that was kind of subversive and 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 very young, and so it felt like you know like every young generation wants to believe that they have figured something out that older people just are never going to get like that they're the first young people on earth ever but with media it young people are given this opportunity to you know shout that not just from the hilltops but we're all broadcasters we each have our own uh, radio station that's constantly on, on the air when we're on social media and so they can have these opinions really much more forcefully and loudly in a way that does move society rapidly forward and helps people our age get it. My whole life has been a lesson and I'm, I'm, I'm getting to a point where I'm like, oh, that stuff that I didn't understand or that just seemed purely subversive when I was 20 and dragged to Rocky Horror Picture Show, I now get, oh, that's how you feel. You feel female, you are female. Okay, all right, cool. Like it, it's finally coming around to where we're all of society hopefully is understanding that every human is different and we're all alike but we're all at the same time different and just because you can't relate to an experience doesn't mean that it isn't uh, valid 
Exactly. And, and again, another example of a movie that didn't do well when it was released. And the audience made this movie, this little movie, you know, that was a small play at the Roxy Theater and originally in, in London, you know, is still running today. It's the longest running film of all time because the audience made it. It so. seems like there are a couple of recurring themes in the cult thing. You mentioned one, Danny, where uh, they all, to a person, fail at the box office and then find an underground audience. Another one is, and I guess the greatest example of this is The Big Lebowski, is that people play it over and over and over again and see something different and more fun every time they show it, and that gives it legs over a period of years. Yeah, it's the uh, uh, Christopher Guest movies are very similar. That's why we include Best in Show. You you know the dialogue, the words, the lines become part of like pop culture. They get spoofed on shows like South Park, you know, um, and that leads to the the cult fandom is when the movie lives on through you know uh, Napoleon Dynamite. When that came out, people were walking around the streets with Vote for Pedro T-shirts. So, and I know, love the fact that the people, the actors in these movies often don't even understand what they're doing. I remember John Turturro making that comment about the Big Lebowski. He said, I had no idea what this film was about. And he was so shocked at its cult fandom uh, after several years of it being out. Yeah, Big Lebowski wasn't the most successful movie either when it was released. And now every year they do Lebowski Fest and Jeff Bridges goes with his band and plays. <laughs> um, it's you, uh, There was a movie called Phantom of the Paradise, which was a Brian De Palma movie with Paul Williams years ago that came out, you know, around the time Tommy came out when the rock opera musicals are popular and didn't do well at all. And it's a great movie. Every year since it's been released, they do Phantom Palooza in Winnipeg. And every year, thousands of people show up in Winnipeg dressed as characters from Family of the Paradise. It still goes on today. I have a T-shirt on, on the wall in my office, just out of sight of the camera, that, that reads, Shocks, Pegs, Lucky. And that is a line from Napoleon Dynamite, which I think is just about the most brilliant film I, I've ever Without watched. I, I saw it several times in the theater, and I've watched it several more times and I, I cannot believe the simple beauty, how unique it is and relatable at the same time is, is just stunning to me. And like little lines like that, that you forgot that you said as a kid, that someone was lucky because they had an item before the time when we could work and earn our own items, when it was dependent upon luck, whether or not you had a bike with shocks and pegs and that you would call another kid lucky. Uh, it. That's just beautiful that someone put that in a script. Plus, it was such a beautifully simple film. I mean, the shots, these locked off shots, there was nothing complicated about it, no effects. It was simple and put you in the mindset of this every teen character on the screen. They interview most of the cast. Um, yeah. That, you know, we got almost everybody and... Uh, they all were amazed at the success of the movie. You know, they were just making this small little movie in Preston, Idaho for a very little money. And, you know, next thing you know, Sundance is where it plays and it explodes. And MTV, I believe, is the one that founded at Sundance and distributed. But when you're making a movie like that, there, there's no way to anticipate what's going to happen after. And that movie exploded 
like almost none, none other. No other. I'd like to be in the pitch meeting. How do they raise money for these films? Not so much that one, because that was a real movie, but some of the more absurd cult films. How do they go in there and convince somebody to give them a, a wad of cash to make these movies? Yeah, it's funny, like the movie The Room. And The Room, which is really our generation's Rocky Horror, was, you know, this very small, not very well-made movie by Tommy Wiseau. And, uh, and of course, the disaster artist that James Franco made is based on the book on the making of The Room. And The Room was just a movie that was made and a bad movie and was about to leave the theaters, the couple Lemley theaters it opened at. And it took a few USC students to sort of stumble upon this movie, tell their friends, who then told their friends, and the run got extended. And here we are, you know, many years later, and it's still playing midnights in London, New York, San Francisco, L.A. People are throwing the spoons in the it's, it's but when Tommy was I was making that movie. Now it's funny. You listen to him now. And I've done uh, I've been to a few Q&A's. Now he says, oh, we always intended it to be like this where, you know, fans would. There's no way <laughs> he tried to make a good movie that's so bad. It's the fans. The audience has made it what it is. He had nothing to do with it, but act badly. So and for he me, did then, for it, he did try to sell it. He took that film to studios, and they threw him out or never returned his calls. Wow. Well, for me, the the greatest, and I don't even know if this was the beginning of the mockumentary or if it if it was uh, groundbreaking at the time. Uh, but this is Spinal Tap is is in my top two. I, I've watched it maybe. 15 times being in the music industry especially you know we caught on very quickly and would bring you know you come on you're coming with me and then you'd go again because you were going to bring another person to it back in the day before things were as quickly on on tv but it it feels like there's a lot of ad-libbing i don't know how much of it is arranged but lines like you know you can't dust for vomit (laughs) was that on a page I, I don't know. This stuff is it, it's just so beautiful and it's so many layers of beautiful because it, it mocks every era of rock and folk and it, it just mocks everything about the music industry so beautifully. I, I just adore it. And in our documentary, I was lucky enough to interview Rob Reiner, who said how many rock stars have come up to him since that movie's come out to say how real it is. And how they've, you know, run through the VHS tape where it's not even viewable anymore. And everyone <laughs> from Sting to, uh, I mean, he named everybody in the, in the rock industry, come up to him at one time or another to say, you don't even know how real and accurate this movie is. And you're right, Louise, you know, you, the more you watch movies like that or Waiting for Guffman or Best in Show, you always keep finding something new. It's like watching the office, you know, episodes of The Office. I can see the same episode 20 times. I'm still always finding something new and and that's why spinal tap is so great and all the christopher guest movies um you keep find you can you can watch it the 20th time you're still finding things yeah and i think that's because there's so many talented people in there and they're all kind of freelancing so you can't be looking at everything on the screen at every moment there's just so much to discover one of these that uh sort of came upon its cult status a, a different way was reefer madness And this is special to me because I remember watching this in about five of my high school classes. (laughs) And somebody in the film had a brilliant comment about it. It was successful as a cult film because of its failed seriousness. 
which is fantastic. <laughs> it's impossible to take it seriously. Uh, but th th that's an interesting one. I think it's the only one of its type where they set out to do something and the reaction was 180 degrees out of phase with what they wanted. <laughs> it's well, an anti-drug movie that made people do drugs to go right. see it. It's better if you go on drugs. <laughs> if you're listening at home, we're about to talk about skin and we're all naked. So, yeah. you know, we're dressed for the Mostly, part. mostly. Mostly, there's some partial nudity in this podcast. If you're if you're only listening, if you're watching, um. I just want to talk about one or two more before we do that, uh, uh, because uh, there are shows like Freaks, which was really fascinating to me. I'd never heard of this, but for folks that don't know the topic, it's made about real people, people that have a general way to describe it is like the kind of freaks you find in the circus or carnivals, disfigured people, uh, uh, little people, people that are different than the mainstream. And in this movie, they all do their own acting. They're treated very poorly, but end up being victorious. And, and what gave this movie its legs was the fact that you end up having great empathy for these people, Danny, and, and sort of identifying with them. If Freaks is really the first cult film, cult film ever made. You know, Todd Browning, who made Dracula, made it right after Dracula. And so this is a movie from the 30s. And yeah, he casts all actual real freaks, you know, sideshow performers, people from, you know, traveling circuses, which makes this movie so authentic. None of them are actors. And it's, again, the, we couldn't dismiss or leave it out because it really is considered the first you know a lot of people think rocky horror is the first you know big cult film it was actually freaks and freaks you know got its audience years later when the midnight revolution at these repertory cinemas uh, started showing movies that was one of the very first movies that was a midnight movie but you and, end uh, up in a different emotional place at the end of the movie you do at the beginning. Oh. At first, it's just the spectacle. It's like pay 50 cents and go in and see the bearded lady. But by the end, they're the heroes of the picture. And it's, it's an interesting, an interesting psychological study. Yeah, very much so that you, you feel sorry for them. You emphasize how they're being exploited. And yeah, you start rooting for them. And I don't want to spoil the movie, mm -hmm. even though the spoiler alert you know, 90 years later seems silly, but um, <laughs> the statute but of limitations is lifted. You can go ahead. <laughs> exactly. It lifts it after it 89 years. <laughs> no, but Fritz is right. You end, you end up rooting for them. You feel bad for them and, and for what you see happening to them um, and how they're exploited. You, they, they're the heroes and you do root for them. It's a great movie. It's so before it's time. And uh, yeah, the acting is well. good. It's really surprisingly good really surprisingly good yeah no, a great movie highly recommend you know doing the time war you know we we did like 45 movies over the three volumes and my hope when it came out was as if you had never seen uh, some of these movies that would make you want to go see them like uh, beyond the valley of the dolls a great russ meyer movie made in, in 1970 is such a great movie but a lot of people don't know it exists or have never seen it and i was always hoping and i believe it's happened but a lot of people who watch this documentary then go see these movies they may have never seen, that they find even more of an audience because a movie like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or Faster Pussycat Kill Kill um, deserve to be seen. And they're great films just in their own merit. So it was really gratifying when people who watched it said, wow, I never saw Pink Flamingos. This is crazy. I'm going to check it out now. And it's a lot of stuff that, you know, when I was a kid, you were told, you know, no, you're not seeing that. And so, right. and, you know, you just never did. 
But now I'm, you know, I'm grown up. I can go see whatever I want, mom. <laughs> um, but yeah, so a lot of stuff like, oh no, there's drugs in that movie. And, you know, you say to a kid like, you're not ready for this. And I was that kid that would go, oh yeah, okay. Because I didn't want to be freaked out at the movie. So I wasn't the kid trying to sneak into adult movies. I was a kid, if someone said there was a hint of anything, I'd be like running in the other direction. Well, a movie like Clockwork Orange, people were told don't see it, and it got confiscated, and there were bootleg. Co- you know, the you ban a movie, it only makes people want to see the movie that much more. Unless and you're me at twelve. If you're me at twelve, you're running from the drive-in. <laughs> no, I don't want to see that. It's going to scare me. I still cover my eyes a lot at the movies, so I'm not. I'm not exactly getting my money's worth, but. Really? Yeah, there are some movies that you talk about in here, and I'm thinking specifically of the Pam Greer movies. Yeah. And the uh, and the zombie movies that actually move the social needle, not intending to. But uh, for instance, she did Coffee and Foxy Brown, but truthfully, and she kicked a little serious butt in this movie. But it was really the first example of a woman having a lead, and, and it was about female empowerment. And uh, it, it it sort of was as badass as you would see a female in any film. So it kind of moved the needle. Also, somebody made a great comment when they were talking about the Pam Greer movies about black exploitation, which was the the moniker that they gave that type of movies. But he he as a black actor hated that term because he said, "Who really got exploited? Black actors got jobs. Black producers made money. Nobody was exploited. It was employing a lot of black people," which was an interesting comment. Yeah, that was Fred Williamson that said that, and it was an interesting comment. Yeah, who was being exploited? We got, we had jobs. We were making money. We were making move, very successful, popular movies. So, who was being exploited? I mean, black exploitation is an odd term now. Yeah, it is, and mm-hmm. to sort of talk about. But you know, Pam Greer was really the first female action hero. You know, nobody was doing movies like this, and. We were really lucky enough to, to interview the writer director who was Jack Hill. And Jack Hill, you know, was a white man directing black exploitation movies, which was also rare. And tells a brief story in the doc when he started collaborating with Pam Greer on coffee. She said, Jack, do you know even what the hood is? Have you ever <laughs> been there? You're going to be directing this movie. And she took him into Compton and different areas and Watts and showed him really what the life was like so it'd be authentic. And uh, he credits Pam Greer, you know, for really, obviously, the success of the movies, but the authenticity of really how gritty and that what that life was like. Um, and it was just interesting, you know, I think a lot of people don't think it was a white director, writer making these black exploitation movies, the most successful ones. But uh, yeah, Pam Greer is amazing. I mean, very underrated, just her whole body of work. And uh It also was the first example of the potential power of the African-American movie marketplace. That was the first time where they said, wow, there's money to be made here. And they made a lot of movie. I mean, I mean, I made a lot of money. It's uh, and the distribution was interesting and learning. You know, these movies didn't get a lot of wide distribution when they were released. They would play at a theater in Detroit for maybe a month and then a theater or two in Chicago for a month or two they wouldn't make their way sometimes back to LA for almost a year and then would get a few theaters. So it's not like, you know, there were no cineplexes then. So it was like one screen at a time. And that's what many of these black exploitation movies, that's how they kind of grew. Superfly played at one theater for months and months and months and months and months selling out. 
And then you take notice and go, well, we want that in our city. And you yeah. make another print. So the times were so much different than you didn't have, you know, 300 screens released at one time or now 3,000. You had one. I think there was a long period of time in American history where the powers that be were more interested in in maintaining segregation than they were in recognizing that black people buy things. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Exactly. That's All right, Weezy, let's talk about skin. We want to talk about this great late All right, so go ahead and introduce the trailer for us, Danny. So Skin is a documentary, excuse me, that that's releasing it's releasing today on Amazon and Fandango and iTunes and Apple TV and all of the video on demand. And it's a, a little over a two hour documentary on and it was I said the definitive documentary on the history of nudity in the movies. We set out not to make something exploitive, because that wouldn't be right, or a breast fest, even though there's a ton of nudity in it. We really wanted to make something educational, informative, entertaining, and fun. And I think we accomplished all of that. And I'm proud to say, you know, I've heard from professors now who want to show this in their cinema courses in colleges. And that to me is one of the ultimate compliments that you learn something. And even if you're a film scholar or you think you know everything about cinema history, I guarantee you'll learn a lot in this movie besides nudity, just about the film industry. But if you're in it for the boobs, there's boobs, boobs, boobs in this movie. It's like a jump cut of the nude scene of every movie. And if you're if you're a 15-year-old who needs to see boobs, this is two hours well spent. Let's go ahead and watch the trailer. 20 minutes after they invented film, somebody started photographing naked people. Hollywood was a kind of Sodom on the Pacific. Middle America was up in arms. There were censorship boards. Moral police. Thou shall not do this, you should not have that, no nudity, and nothing licentious or lecherous. If the code movies teach us anything, it's that there are ways around stuff. You have people making movies without the seal of approval. It has sex, it has violence, it has the relationship between sex and violence. Subversive stuff. Marilyn Monroe was the first actress to prove that nudity doesn't destroy a career, can even help a career. And then Jane Mansfield was right behind her. Then Mamie Van Doren. That's Anne Margaret, and she's naked. Everybody's naked, and they're touching each other. (laughs) They decided to allow nudity in movies. Midnight Cowboy won an Oscar and was rated X. About bloody time. It was liberating for actors and actresses to get nude on screen. When am I ever going to look this good again? If I hadn't done the nudity, I might not have a career today. I wouldn't have gotten the role had I not had breasts. If I'm naked, people are going to go like this. In America, <laughs> they go, oh my god. I wasn't prepared for the entire world picking your body apart. You want to be attractive enough that people want you to be naked, but you want to work with people that aren't going to abuse it. I don't want to be known as the actress who just does nudity. I didn't have the choices that women do today. Now they're There's more of a system of checks and balances. The growing Me Too movement. People are very aware of power dynamics. What price do you put on your body and what are you willing to get naked for? People are afraid of sex and maybe they're a little bit afraid of nudity too. You were looking. You were looking awfully close, weren't you? (laughs) Great trailer. So well done. I mean, because you capture all, all of the themes and they're complicated human themes. There's, you know, we have this push-pull relationship with our own lustful feelings and it's just absolutely fascinating stuff. So well done, 
Thank you. Applause. Yeah, it's really, it's wonderful, and especially resonant now with the Me Too movement. And we'll talk about that later on, but it sort of changed the whole atmosphere on sets. And now you have intimacy, uh, hosts, and all that yep. kind of thing. We'll talk about it. But I, I think this all boils down to like uh, AD and BC, uh, which is pre-code and then code and then post-code. Talk about what the code was, Danny, and when it happened. Well, the, the code was created basically in the, in the late, in the 1920s, nudity was rampant in movies. Every major star, the movie Wings in 1927 was an Academy, the first ever best picture. And there's the lead actress. Um, wait, no, I see, I Clara Bow. Clara Bow, thank you, is nude in the movie. And you had films with, you know, ecstasy. And you had two but, men kissing in that movie, too. Exactly. And, you know, these early movies in the 20s, there was a lot of nudity. Claudette Colbert, Hedy Lamar in Ecstasy. These were all major actresses. And then, you know, religion comes into play and the Catholic Legion of Decency. And they basically created in the late 20s this code called the Hayes Code. And it was basically a, a strict, like, set of guidelines for studios and directors of what you can and cannot show. So not only were they told not to show nudity, otherwise you weren't going to get into theaters, they controlled language, they controlled scenery, they controlled trailers, they controlled animation, and it was really the first form of censorship. Will Hayes was the most recently notorious Postmaster General. You know, we've gone how many years without right. knowing the name of a postmaster general? And then, yep. and here we are again. But I remember he would stand there and make these little films that would show before the film. And he would talk about, don't worry at mom, don't worry about it, mom and dad. I got this. I'm on it. Your kid is not going to see anything that you're going to have to uh, explain or whatever. But like, tell us how it would work or how it went down or how, how the audience experienced the, the new code. Well, so, so the code was created really in like 1929, but it was never enforced. Uh, so they were still making movies with a lot of nudity to like 1934. Then in 1934, that's when, you know, Joseph Bream was appointed the head of the Hayes Code. And from like 34 to 54, that's when it was strictly, you know, uh, adhered to. Uh, the Catholic Church would hand out cards to people in, in churches telling them, what to see and what not to see, which was only making when you're a kid and you go to church and you're given a card saying you definitely don't want to see this movie because <laughs> of X, Y, you're going to go see the movie. So it's really driving people to see the films. So what happened is the code basically, there was the pre-code was 30 to 34 where nobody was enforcing it. So they were still making these movies like the Scarlet Empress um, with a lot of nudity. Then 34 to basically, I can go 1968, is when before the MPAA existed in 1968, where this code existed. But there were a lot of directors that were breaking the code and still going ahead and making films with nudity, like a Howard Hughes was doing it. Even Cecil B. DeMille did it. And then you move into the time, you know, with Doris Wishman, Herschel Gordon Lewis, of course, Russ Myers. So, you know, they didn't want to adhere to the code. They're like, screw it. We're going to make movie because people want to see nudity. So they were doing like nature films, naturalist movies, nudie cuties. Um, they were doing monster nudies, any like almost stag type films. The only problem is they weren't getting wide distribution. 
They would play in New York in Times Square. Or they would get a few theaters in Hollywood. No studio would distribute a movie with nudity into many theaters. So they were almost like underground, but they're all hits. And then really the, the, the code was crumbling in the 60s. In 1968, really like with Easy Rider and Midnight Cowboy, that's when everything really opened up. Mind you, in Europe, though, Europe had nudity in the 50s, 60s. You know, they weren't like America at all. You know, we're kind of a prudish society. And it's we've always been behind Europe and, and their films as far as nudity goes. But I think now with streaming, we've sort of caught up. How does the ratings board become a thing? So that we're talking about way pre-internet. And I know now that parents can go online and say, you know, even if it has a rating, they still go on these websites and they say, okay, well, what exactly is in it? Because my daughter is afraid of this, but she's not afraid of that. And they still want to know. And I'm sure even in Europe, when there was all this nudity in movies, that there were still parents who, who were deciding, I'm not sure if I want my child to see this. I'm sure there were people that were still concerned that you don't want a child exposed to too much sexual content before their brain is developed enough to understand what's happening and what's going to be expected of them as they mature into adulthood. So it's always been, I think, a treacherous area to navigate. Well, what's interesting, we got to interview Joan Graves, who was the head of the, uh, head of the MPAA just before she retired. And she said, I'll do the interview, but I want to make it very clear. We're not censors. We're not a censorship board. These are guidelines for parents. The, the G, P, G, R, and X. These are just, and by the way, the MPA, MPAA is made up of parents. I didn't know this. That's who puts the ratings. They screen the movie together and sets of parents that actually do these ratings. And she said, I'll do your interview under one condition. I want people to realize we're not a censorship board and we're not here to censor. These are guidelines for parents. That's all the ratings are is a guideline for a parent to know what's acceptable or not acceptable for their child. And that's you know, the, why Hay the Hayes office and, and Breen was the industry's desire to self-regulate. And it's a situation we find ourselves in now with big tech where the film industry said, if we don't self-regulate, and, you know, Hayes was just an employee of the movie industry. Somebody mm -hmm. said that he wasn't as moral as you would think by his proclamations. He was just in the employ of the movie industry to take the pressure off of them, which is kind of where we find big tech now. And people like Jeff Zuckerberg are trying to decide if we don't self-regulate this industry, Congress is going to end up doing it. And that's kind of what happened around the code time, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, you know, there were stories also of brain being paid off by studios. It, it's, it is hard to believe that, like, one man was dictating decades of what was going up on the screen. And yeah. that's one thing many critics and, and reviewers have, have made comment on. They didn't even understand or know about this. This, this is a period of time that you, I think a lot of people don't even know existed. I think most people thought there's just been nudity in every decade since, you know, before the silent era. But no, there was a huge gap where this code existed. And, and you're right, uh, Fritz, it seems like we're almost there again today. Well, with I think there was, there was a- With Amazon, you know, uh, with mm -hmm. Bezos, that it's, we're going full circle here again. There's that period of time where, where no one in society is really aware of the influence this new technology is about to have on all of us. And the film industry had that period where it was like, Oh, it's like moving pictures and like it's just kind of like a novelty. And then all of a sudden it has this power over us. 
and our children. And it's the same with technology and the internet. At first, it's kind of like a gadget, and then it's it's everything. So, you know, big big industry or big government is always behind the curve. The innovators are always ahead, and then they have to catch up and go like, no, wait a minute, you guys aren't allowed to do that because it's not right, it's not fair, and people are being hurt, and blah, 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 blah. So it's interesting how we regulate ourselves, but not in time for to get ahead of technology. They're always several leaps ahead. Yes. And really hard to regulate because apparently back at the beginning of the code, every state had its own rules. So, you know, you have the whole cross state lines commerce thing. Is it yep. can we enforce this in Utah, but we can't enforce it in South Dakota? So it was very confusing. And another yeah. thing, another interesting thing about the ratings board is when they started assigning the ratings, there were people that wanted it, their rating ticked down a notch, and then there were people that would just purposely give their film an X or three X's because, you know, XC is sexy. So the X kind of got hijacked by the porn industry. And now, so describe that, Danny. Well, yeah, X, X was actually not a death sentence. I mean, Midnight Cowboy was an X-rated movie that won Best Picture. It was really, as Joe Dante talks about, it was until the triple X that's when that was, you know, films that were pornographic, but an X rating went to several movies back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s. And uh, again, that was, you know, people would still be able to see them. They were, they were in movie theaters uh, before there were pussycat theaters that again, then went into more, you know, Deep Throat, The Devil and Miss Jones and those types. But Joe Dante made an interesting comment where he said, Roger Corman films would be slapped with an X and they would go re-edit and take out what they were supposed to take out, get the R, and then put the footage they took out back in and then get it in the theaters because nobody would double check. So oh, he says, wow. you don't know how many times we had movies shown that were the X-rated version that was slapped, you know, was given an R by the MPAA because we said, yeah, we took those three scenes out you wanted out. Here's the movie. And they'd, they would, they'd sign off on the film, the MPAA. They would go right back to Corman and put the scenes back in and they would play. Nothing ever happened. I want to talk about your experience making this film, Danny. And, you're, you know, you're sitting down next to an actress. You've seen her naked. She knows you've seen her naked. And now you need to uh, introduce the subject of having her speak about that experience. So, how, you know, did, how, how would you frame your opening question? I was what I asked everybody and was very important is how did the nudity affect not only their personal lives but their career, and that was the one question I thought was very important to ask everyone. And I watched every movie we covered, um, and <coughs> I was very familiar with a lot of these actresses in these films. But it was very important for me to get how nudity not only affected their career but their personal lives because everyone had a different story, and we really do you know, cover that well here. An actress like Erica Gavin, uh, who was in a movie called Vixen, she went to the premiere of the movie and saw herself for the first time on a big screen and basically hated the way she looked. And because of that, she started picking her body apart and became anorexic and was nearly, nearly died from the experience of seeing her on the... It's a very personal story, which is really interesting. Then there's actresses that would do nudity in their first film and then started only getting roles that required nudity because they were, they're okay to do it. Diane Franklin, a young actress that her first movie was The Last American Virgin, a great early 80s teen sex comedy. She does several topless scenes. So the next movie she does is Amityville Horror 2. 
she does nudity in that movie and then every script she's offered after that is a film with nudity because they think she's okay to do it and she talks about having to have a talk with her agent and saying you know what i'm an actress i don't want to be known as the girl that only does nudity in movies and stopped accepting roles and so it's interesting the dynamic of the certain actresses that like shannon elizabeth uh in american pie who's does uh, nudity in that film said uh, she owes her career to her nude scenes in american pie because she got a three picture deal from miramax so she credits her nudity for her career some actresses um really just were okay doing it if it was germane to the role if it was you know if it was important for the character or important for the story most of the people i interviewed male and female by the way because we cover male nudity also they were all okay to do the nudity if it wasn't exploitive and if it was really uh integral to the to the storyline or to the movie if you're going to do a movie like showgirls you know what you're getting into i mean you're going to be doing nudity they're not stripping and you know there's not tuxedos on underneath uh their pasties <laughs> or interviewing mariel hemingway in personal best she said of course if you're going to do a realistic movie about women on a track team they're going to all go in the sauna after they work out and are not going to be wearing clothes so she was comfortable doing the nudity because it was authentic to playing a high school track star that you would be nude her interesting uh, story and I and I love Mariel Hemingway and I was really happy to interview her cuz Star 80 is one of my favorite movies she went from doing personal best where she's got small breasts to then doing star 80 where she's playing Dorothy Stratton playmate of the year in the Bob Fosse film star 80 and i remember for years hearing these stories about her breasts and her enlargement to get the role and i remember as a kid watching these news stories that everybody only talked about did she have a breast job didn't she did she did it was everything was about it. and eric roberts talks about that in this documentary and i was so happy to sit down with her and have her explain yes i had a breast enlargement job done for the role in star 80 otherwise i wouldn't have gotten the role bob fosse was not going to hire me to play a playmate from how i looked in my previous movie personal best but she wanted the role so badly that she had her breast enlarged then she also says i would never do that just for a role well she of course did um so you know it affects every actor and actress in a different way but the really the, the theme was if they really thought it was done for the role and for the character they were playing and it was important for the script most didn't have any problem doing it. one of your actresses was really pragmatic and said i thought to myself you know i'm never going to look any better than i do right now let's get this on film for perpetuity <laughs> i thought that was great Yeah, Betsy Russell who started in private school, which brings up an interesting point which as what I would also ask them is, you know, when you're making these movies back in the 70s and 80s, there's no internet. So maybe your movie would come out on VHS or Beta or Laserdisc whatever the medium and then maybe just disappear. Now when you do these movies, it's out for life because of the internet and because of these websites, if you're going to do nudity, it's never going to go away. It's out there for the masses forever and ever and ever. And so, your body's going to be parsed over and over again by every, you know, yeah. male in the western hemisphere. 
Yeah, that's that's also very interesting. So now, you know, off some of these actresses, oh, I didn't think anybody was going to see Christine DeBell, who was in Alice in Wonderland, said, it was my first movie, I needed the role. I didn't think anybody was going to see it. Well, guess what? You can go on the internet today and see every piece of, you know, every frame of nudity she'd done. And that was, you know, 45 years ago. And how many people were sort of coerced, not maybe coerced is a strong word, but like, encouraged that it, even if it wasn't on the page that oh now that you're on the set there there's that scene with uh, where you're talking amy heckerling and it's a woman but she's telling the young actress i can't remember the name oh yeah that was martha coolidge you did valley girl yeah valley and girl with eg e. daily where atlantic releasing told martha coolidge we need four sets of breasts in this movie otherwise you're not going to get the distribution and we want this movie to play all over the world in her script, she had three scenes with nudity and basically had to add one. And it wasn't in the script. And E.G. Daly uh, was taken to the side and, and Martha Coolidge told her, we need to do the scene where you take your top off. And it wasn't in the script. And E.G. didn't agree to it when she signed on to the movie and called her agents and said, what is this? I feel like I'm being ambushed, but I also don't want to hurt the production. I don't want to be known as someone being difficult or ruin the chances of this film getting distribution. So they got together on the side and discussed how they were going to do the scene tastefully, artistically, and it's in the movie and it's a good scene. Uh, but it is interesting that, yeah, a lot of your distribution um, in the 70s and early 80s was based on nudity. Pam Greer and uh, Sybil Banning talk about if you're doing a women in prison film, yes, you're going to have a shower scene. And there's going to be a bunch of women naked in the shower in the women's prison. That's to get foreign distribution. But every actress who does those movies knows what they're signing on. You know it. Linda Blair, on the other hand, a little different experience doing Chained Heat, where she said the movie that I made wasn't the movie I went to make. Uh, it wasn't the movie I signed on to make. And it wasn't the script. wasn't the same script that I originally read. And there were scenes thrown in almost last minute um, where she was coerced to take her top off. And she said, you know what? I did it because I didn't want to destroy the movie, hurt these people who were making the movie's career. I didn't want to be known as a troublemaker. I didn't want to get the reputation of being difficult or that I wouldn't do something the director asked me to do. So, you know, that was the time where women, women, you know, now they're empowered and they can say no. But back in the 70s and 80s, you hear these stories of a lot of actresses that were afraid to say no and well, define, do that. Define the new uh, the newly uh, created job title of Int intimacy coordinator, because I and, and then kind of talk about how maybe that would have gone down differently if this person had been there as an advocate. Well, yeah, we, we discovered there's this new uh, role called an intimacy coordinator or an intimacy director. And we interview uh, Alicia Rodas in our film. And she was the intimacy director on The Deuce uh, for HBO. And it's really, it's, a, it's they're there to make sure if there's nudity, uh, male or female, that it's done in good taste, that it's done correctly, that it's done authentically, and that the actors and actresses are not being taken advantage of or being talked into something that they didn't sign on to do. It's, it's really also an insurance policy for the studios uh, which is really what they are. Uh, it takes some of that he said, she said, I, you know, the director said to do this and the director said, no, I didn't tell them. To. 
this person's there as an insurance policy, but it's a great, I think it's a great job and it should cut a lot of this, you know, nonsense that went on, you know, for so many decades where if you're going to do a nude scene, it's going to be done correctly. And again, authentically, you have someone on the set looking out for you and uh, it's an important position and uh, I'm glad we covered it and I'm glad we knew about it. And it's funny when we did the cut, it was the first cut of this was about six hours. And as you know, Louise, when you start editing down a documentary, you take out a lot of stuff you don't want to take out. And uh, one scene in particular, you know, CGI is becoming quite prominent now, especially with nudity. And we did have a scene of uh, an actress, Marion Coutillard, who did a movie called Isabel's Ghost. Not a big movie, but she used CGI for her breasts. And we had a scene, a split screen of what she looked like really before the CGI and after. And we took it out in one of our last cuts. I kind of regret it now because it's important, but that's where we are. Um, body doubles won't be as important a job anymore because of CGI and because of the computer that now actresses may not want to do nudity, but they'll do scenes with nudity and it won't be their breasts. And I, I asked the director. Do they have like, any control over that, Danny? Uh, well, that's I, what, yeah, that's a good question. Like, do you get a menu and basically get to pick what size breasts you want? Hers were pretty <laughs> obvious. When you see Isabel's ghost and we, the before and after, they were quite larger in the scene she does where she walks across this living room uh, topless. It's really obvious between if you see her in her previous movie where she was topless and now, but it was a decision she probably said, I, I don't want to do nudity anymore. Um, but if you have a computer and some CGI, I'm okay with it. So what it's going to come down to is you won't even know, you know, in the next few years when you are seeing nudity, if it's indeed the actress you think you're seeing. Because, you know, a lot of Academy Award actresses are doing nudity today. I mean, Anne Hathaway and Reese Witherspoon and Jennifer Lawrence, Julianne Moore, and go on and on, where, you know, I think you're seeing more nudity now than ever. And But it's going to come a time where you're not going to know because of CGI if that's that person's breasts or not. They get a nudity rider in their contracts, right? What's included in one of those? Well, nudity, it's interesting. Nudity riders, contain, I mean, contain a lot. Uh Serena Vincent, an actress we interviewed, in her nudity writer when she did the movie Cabin Fever, um, she was supposed to show her butt. And in her writer, she had it that not more than one inch of her butt crack can be seen in the movie. And actually said director Eli Roth took a tape measure out when it got time to do the scene with the nudity in her rear end. They actually took a tape measure and taped and one, one inch because that was in her writer. No, not more than one inch of, you know, butt crack, if you will. And they pulled her pants up and they had the one inch and that's what was used in the movie. So nudity rise, you hear quite a lot. I mean, it's everything. You hear the amount of minutes, the amount of seconds, how it's done, if it's done with shadows or not shadows or in the shower. It's, I, I think I heard every uh, There must be special attorneys that negotiate these things for young actresses. I would think so. And, and, and yeah, it's funny. It's, we interviewed a couple of young actresses that have been, that did low budget horror films. And they said often there wouldn't be nudity in the script. And the director would say to them, Hey, for an extra $500 today, would you take your top off in this one scene? 
And a couple of the actresses I interviewed said they did it. And again, wasn't so much they were getting an extra $500 like on the fly to do it. Um, they said the same thing, sort of Linda Blair said. They didn't want to say no because they were a young actress and they didn't want the reputation of being, um, you know, uh, difficult or, you know, a problem. So the few I interviewed said they did it. They didn't well, want to do it. It wasn't what they signed up to do. Because there, there is this power dynamic where yeah. act actors want roles and directors are the people that can give them roles. So there's there's nothing that we can do to uh, alter that imbalance of power. So I'm just wondering if, because you've interviewed a lot of people and you so you, you now know how this plays out in people's lives, but do you think that nudity is actually empowering for women and for female actresses, or are we being told it's empowering to convince women to do what men would really like them to do? Are men still really in control and, uh, and driving this bus? Good uh, I, think the, I think the bus has changed. Uh, there's so many more female directors now and more even female studio heads. And I think actresses now have more empowerment than ever that they can say the word no. And there's no repercussions to the word no, which is very important because for many decades, the word no might've meant a death sentence for your career. So I think first you see so many more female producers and directors now, I think they nurture and take care of female actresses. So I, I think it's gotten far better and I think it'll continue to get better. Because of we're the age of streaming, nudity's not going away. I think you're going to see more nudity now than ever uh, with HBO and Hulu and Netflix and Amazon and shows like Game of Thrones. Uh, nudity isn't as taboo anymore. You know? You're seeing a ton more of it. There's more outlets for it, first of all, with the streaming networks. That's why you're seeing so many, I mean, so many more uh, TV shows and films now with nudity. But I think that stigma's lifted. I don't think people look at it uh, anymore as being something dirty or bad. Though, you know, someone brought up a point the other day, said, you know, you can have a, a horror movie where someone puts a chainsaw to a breast and you see the breast and it gets chopped off and it's an R. But there might be a movie where a man caresses the woman's breast or kisses it and it's an X or NC-17. So that still exists. <laughs> That, to me, that just says we're we're entirely confused about what what is acceptable or what is beauty and what is gore. And when you when there is nudity, it tends to invite you know gore and shock and a lot a lot of what goes into films that are designed to just um, you know tap a certain part of our psyche. Like, can you believe it? <laughs> can you believe it? Like, holy, I can't look away. You know, kind of kind of part of our psyche. And 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 that's why, you know, I do watch a lot of movies like this because I don't know if it's going to be just a breast or someone chopping off a breast. Like I like once I see a breast, I'm thinking, oh, shit, what else is going to happen? You know, uh, beca because they, they've decided it's acceptable to show me a breast. So is is um, is someone's head about to get blown off? Like I you know, those are kind of my barometers of like, oh, we're not we're not watching the Disney stream. Uh, something could happen that I find I find unsettling, upsetting, uh, you know, et cetera, because I'm kind of like a you know a nervous uh, film watcher but uh but it's interesting i wanted to talk to you before you go about it's not just like what's on the film because of course the bo the body is beautiful and no one should be ashamed of uh, you know we we we've painted nude bodies you know since men could scratch something into a into a cave but um 
what happens in the auditioning process when when the part we don't see when a young actress or an actress of any age is told you know well there's going to be a nude scene and so uh i need to see your penis how do we protect actors from the the auditioning process i think that's definitely changed over time i mean sean young uh discusses in the documentary when she was filming the movie no way out and she was going to do a scene with nudity with kevin costner in a limousine pretty infamous scene how director roger donaldson in her audition said lift your top up i want to see your breasts should that matter no it really shouldn't matter but did it of course maybe if he didn't like her breasts, she wouldn't have gotten a role in a movie a mainstream big budget studio film uh you know then rena riffle talked about doing the movie showgirls and um you know uh paul verhoven the director you know during everyone and and joe esterhouse the writer during their auditions having to take their tops off now you're playing a stripper that's for the role so then you go well is it really for the role or is it a director or casting people that just want to see these actresses naked that i I don't have the answer to because i wasn't in those rooms but you hear the stories of often of actresses uh taking their tops off for some roles that didn't even have nudity in it uh which is sickening and kind of sad but i think that I, I don't think you can do that today. I don't think you can be a director or producer or a cast in the, in the me too era. Uh, you're done. If you ask an actress to do that now, they probably have witnesses in the room. I doubt they're alone anymore with um, them. Fritz, just did you have to do any nudity yeah. when you were auditioning to be a weather? Yes, that's how I got the weather job. They said, do you have any special way you could point to a low pressure system? I said, let me show you this. Oh my. Hey, uh, Dan's film is called Skin, A History of Nudity in Films. And again, I want to stress, it's about more than a boob fest, as Wheezy said. It really is a commentary on pinched Western social mores and how we've bounced back and forth with that since the first part of the 20th century. It's released on multiple platforms today. It's a great piece of work. It was a great conversation. Dan Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, yes. Fritz and Louise. Uh, I appreciate it a lot. And I think people, uh, it's tasteful, it's educational, and I think it's, uh, in the context, it's very interesting. And really, there's nothing uncomfortable about it. It's not Absolutely. salacious at all. No, if you no. want to see bo- if you want to see boobs, it's got boobs. But if you also want to learn about, you know, our relentless struggle with morality and, 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 uh, and desire, uh, then it's all there because a film is a reflection of life. And so it's all there. And this is something we all struggle with every day. You know, what it, what is natural to crave and what is uh, exploitive? It's just that all of life is a balance, but this is in particular a very fascinating one. And you, it's a great piece of work. And I hope you'll stick around for the next 30 seconds, Danny, while I read the closing credits. Which Absolutely, now I will. Which now include our social media, so take notes. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content, um, boobs, on our YouTube channel. No, there's not. Our YouTube channel is Media Path Podcast. I want to thank our guest, Danny Wolf, for joining us. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, 
Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, and you. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. <laughs>